welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Cultural critic and historian Larissa Reinhart writes about art, war, politics, and the places where these discourses intersect. Her writing has recently appeared in Hyperallergic, Perfect Strangers, and Narratively, among other publications. She holds an MA from NYU in Experimental Humanities and a BA in Literature from UC Santa Cruz. When not writing, she can be found photographing the natural world, impinging upon the urban landscape, or digging in the dirt with her husband and two sons in Santa Barbara, California. I guess the first thing that I was really curious about and we chatted briefly about is that you've written autobi or not autobiography, biography. Mm-hmm. And reading it, I have to admit it's not gonna be the first genre that jumps out at me. I read a lot of fiction. And memoir, I really like storytelling. And Mm -hmm. I was so pleasantly surprised to Mm -hmm. see how readable First to the Front really is from page one. Thank you. I really, really got pulled in and in fact had to go and like Google some other things that Mm -hmm. weren't super clear to me straight from the beginning about Dickie Chappelle. I first wanted to ask what made you land on her, at least for this project, because this is your first, your debut book that's published by St. Martin's. But as you'd said, not your first written. And by the way, welcome to the ranks of all of the (laughs) overnight success authors I've talked to. Right, right. It's uh, overnight success and overnight is the thousands of nights that you spend, (laughs) you know, working and writing. But yeah, so I found out about Dickie Chappelle when I was in college and working summers at a coffee shop. And I would go, this will date me, but I would take my tip money in cash and go to the (laughs) record store. And I bought a album by the name of A Clock Without Hands by Nancy Griffith, who I don't know if you know her, but she is a wonderful folk singer of Americana. And she had on that album a song called Pearl's Eye View. And it was about Dickie Chappelle, because I don't know if you remember, but she always wore these pearl earrings to remind her of her own luck and her own privilege of being free, because she wore these earrings into prison, actually. And they were miraculously returned to her when she got out of uh, prison in Budapest. So um, it was about it was about Dickie Chappelle. And that's how I came to know her at first. And I just sort of understood that everyone sort of knew about her because I did. You know, if if I know, everybody knows. (laughs) As I I got older, I realized that not everyone knew about her. In fact, there had been very few things written about her and the things that had been written about her didn't necessarily reflect the enormity of her impact and her brilliance. And I wrote an article for Narratively and um, from that came the book. Wow. 
Well, she's such an amazing, and I'm going to say, even though she started at a time where that wasn't necessarily part of the zeitgeist, Mm. she was such a feminist, Mm -hmm. such a really brave woman. It, It sort of clobbered me, even though it was mentioned throughout. But to see in numerical terms, 20 year old, and I Mm -hmm. thought, wow, she was so ballsy. Mm -hmm. And especially coming from the Midwest, uh, Mm -hmm. just as a background, my family of origin on my mom's side are all Midwesterners, Protestant, Mm -hmm. you do things a certain way, you dress a certain way. And that was definitely where she was coming from. So it was really interesting reading about somebody that I'd not heard about Mm -hmm. at all and doing these things and and just starting so young. I mean, obviously she was brilliant. She, as it happens, was born the same year that my grandfather was born. Mm. Unfortunately, I mean, Dickie was lost to the world too soon, far too soon. Mm -hmm. My granddad died in 2020, just Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. pandemic at Mm -hmm. 100 years old, but he was born the same year Mm -hmm. as she was in Illinois. Yeah. So it just... Yeah, it clobbered me with that sort of recognition that that's a very modern story. Mm -hmm. And it started back in, you know, right at the end of World War One. Yeah, I mean, she was born at the end of World War One. And as to your grandfather, it's amazing the changes that the world goes through in in one in one lifetime. But as to your point, in regard to her being a feminist, she was a feminist. And I think she was a feminist most in that she was always true to herself mm. and her vision, right? Mm. Because I think that's at the core of our feminism is we want to, we demand to be allowed to be who we are at our yeah. core. And that's what she was. And that's what she did. And of course, the world tried to knock her off of that course many, many times, but she would not be deterred. And so at a time when there were only a few women who were doing combat reporting as she did. She continued on and she continued after. You know, you have this um, incredible pantheon of women who are combat reporters in World War II, some in the Spanish Civil War and some in World War I. But then when we arrive into the 1950s, you really see that that has disappeared. In part, some of them passed away. In part, some of them took other career opportunities and in part because that just wasn't available to them anymore. Uh, but Dickie continued by hook or crook to find her way into the action. I mean, at, at the end of World War II and the beginning of the 1950s, she did so by reporting on peace, by reporting on what happens after war, um, which I found so fascinating and and something that few combat reporters today or then cover but which informed her journalism with this understanding of what a war is fought for and mm. what happens after yeah. peace treaties are signed. Yeah, Because in a lot of ways, the soldiers go home, but the civilians are left in that war zone, m- metaphorically and, mm. and, and, and uh, literally. And so she brought that sense of humanism. She brought that long view to to her reporting as i as i think not a lot of um journalists are are able to which all sort of brings me to the next thing that struck me and we talked a little bit about it in the episode about memoir mm-hmm. which is in in this case or with memoir 
unless we have direct journals that we're looking at, we're taking a little bit of creative license, which is always challenging for writers themselves to take creative license with dialogue. But for me, one of the things that brings me into story is not just textbook facts, but Mm. dialogue and actually bringing the reader in to an Mm. experience. And you did that. So it made me think, how'd she do that? How did Larissa get, (laughs) did she, did she keep a journal where she wrote what people said, or did you have to extrapolate based on the way she was sharing potentially in journals or no she kept she she didn't journal often she did keep journals sometimes right and I'm sure a lot of what she wrote is lost for various reasons but she she kept detailed detailed notes and she wrote down dialogue so there are I did not make up any dialogue every line of dialogue that is in the book is taken from a line of dialogue that she recorded in an article, in a book she wrote, in a journal. And only rarely do I sort of edit, right? Do I say, right. oh, okay, she's, somebody said this and somebody said this over here and I'm going to put them together. And if I did, it's only ever truncated. And I, I wanted to bring that to this book for two reasons. One, because she was so good at reporting on and capturing the essence of the people. Mm-hmm. that she spent time with. And she wanted their voices to come through in her writing. And she did a really good job of presenting other voices in her work. Mm-hmm. And I wanted that to be communicated in this book, to be in the, her spirit. And I also wanted to make sure that the book aligned with her journalistic uh, ethos. Her voice came through, but also the voices of those that she sought to elevate. And maybe that's, I don't want to generalize, but I feel like that's a very feminine perspective, looking mm. for the whole and and especially in war times. And like I said, she was very ballsy. I'm struck near the beginning of the book, there's a scenario where she does something. Again, she, she seems like somebody who would just raise her hand for hard things. And the mm-hmm, men around mm-hmm. would say, oh, oh, sweetheart. Uh, no yeah. yeah. Or they'll be like, uh, okay, I'll take you on the, the mini ride. Like if she were skiing, right. we'll take you on the bunny slope. And yeah. it was the the trying to report on the, not trying, reporting on the G-force. And right. then having her come back up and experience it fully mm-hmm. in her body as you are forced to do. Mm-hmm. But then sort of finish it with a smile Mm -hmm. and that moxie that she takes through everything, except further along in her story, you do weave in a lot more of that compassion and understanding Mm -hmm. for, especially within Vietnam and all of the war in Asia. We don't usually get super deep into the content of books, but in the podcast, but the reason I guess I'm doing it here, number one, is it's fascinating Because I think that more men generally read Mm -hmm. nonfiction like this. And I think this is very much a book that women should read because Mm -hmm. it gives her approach was so wholehearted, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And she wanted to give a complete picture. So the the before-ish, the during, and then the after and how it's affecting real people. And that seems much more like a, I don't want to call it a metric, but a feminine metric, like a feminine drive to see how are the people affected. Yeah. And I think she was forced to see, I think it's both somewhat biological, but also sociological, right? 
because she was forced to engage with that in a way that men weren't, right? In World War II, she was stationed on hospital ships, in hospitals, because that's the only place that she was allowed was to be Mm. where other women were already. So she was with nurses at all times. Mm. So she was in field hospitals, hospital ships, and medevac planes. Well, she is not experiencing at that time the front as it is, shooting, you know, bombs like as male correspondence would have been. She is seeing the aftermath. That is the first true experience of her combat reporting. And yes, she did go to the front of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, but the majority of her experience was with the aftermath. And so both biologically and sociologically, she was forced to find that whole or holistic experience and approach to reporting on war, which she continued throughout her career. And again, just going back to her experience in reporting on post-war Europe. And then she also reported on the Point Four program, which was sort of a foreign aid package that the United States put together um, to try and combat Soviet influence, you know, kind of around the world in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia predominantly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So tell me a little bit about how you move from, you know, having this fascinating woman in your brain that you realize eventually not everybody knows who she is Mm -hmm. to writing an article that's your jumping off point for writing something longer. Because whether it's readily available, you have to go get it. There's a lot of content that Mm -hmm. you are having to sift through to create. I mean, there's a natural story if we look chronologically, but then there are all of these extra pieces. So what did that process look like for you? Was it very much like going back to what we would do in academics, which is hardcore research. So is your process like, I've set out these days, I'm going to do it, I'm going to research here. What does that look like for you as a writer? Well, it was kind of, the answer was absolutely insane. um, (laughs) Because I, okay, so I got, I'll just, I'll sort of begin at the beginning. Yeah. Ronald Gerber, who is my agent for Lowenstein Associates, actually wrote me to ask me if I wanted to write a book about Dickie Chappelle. That's how I got agented. And I got that email when I was six months pregnant. Oh, sure. (laughs) Sure. Perfect time. Perfect timing. So then I was like, yes, I would love to do this. I put together a proposal for him, send it to him. He's like, great, let's go. Okay. Then I'm eight months pregnant. I fly to Wisconsin, Madison, where her archives are to do research for the book pitch. So I'm really pregnant, you know, in the archives, working eight hours a day, like on my feet. Thankfully, my husband came with me and like cooked all the meals and (laughs) did everything that needed to be done to get me there. So then I finish the book proposal, I give birth, and then I sell the book like three months later. So I'm like, need a breath deep and breastfeeding, trying to like edit and write on my phone while I'm breastfeeding while also reading really heavy academic articles about the realities of, you know, everything the CIA was up to in Iran and Cuba and of course, Vietnam and that whole progression. So yes, it was to answer your original question, which was perhaps you didn't know how insane the story was. But yeah, I did a lot of academic research and then spent a lot of time trying to fit that into the arc of her story. Because what I wanted to convey was how 
much her life was woven into the arc of of the early Cold War Mm. and how much the arc of the Cold War was woven into her life. And those things are inextricable Mm. and really speak to each other um, in a way that I think not a lot of narratives are able to, to, to do. So I really wanted the book to have that academic context, but in a readable form. Yeah. Well, maybe that's great. You know, having talked about past episodes and mm-hmm. and thinking about sort of marrying or or how do we get academic writing, and it was really heartening to hear. I mean, it makes me sound extra old. I feel mm-hmm. like I just went to uni the other day, but of course mm-hmm. that wasn't true. But how the the push is now to make even academic papers more readable, mm-hmm. so they are for they can be useful. Mm-hmm. And that would have been nice for you to read, but I don't think they'd gone that path um, <laughs> for some of the research. So yeah. part of your process was you were approached to to write about a subject that that agent knew that you knew about. Mm-hmm. And then you came up with a proposal for anyone who doesn't know, who hasn't written in nonfiction. Personally, I don't love proposals for memoir. And that's just mm. my own bias. I, mm-hmm. I like to read a whole thing, but people do still submit a proposal generally for nonfiction, whether or not they've fully finished it. But you submitted having not fully finished it. So yes. but that two months that you were writing a proposal, that's when you came up with her the story arc. Now it does follow somewhat mm-hmm. chronologically. But you would have had to pick the pieces. Did you, did it feel like this is firm and therefore here's my, here's what they've acquired, this particular proposal with this particular structure, and Mm -hmm. I'm just going to stick to it? Or did you find as you were writing it changed a little bit based on what changed the most? I think in speaking to process and the realities of publishing, Mm. it did, it changed, it changed a lot. Mm. And then what changed, I think, the most from my proposal to the first draft to the finished book is how long it was, right? I think mm. I'm not alone in that I, my first draft was twice as long as the finished book. And, wow. Uh, oh, yeah. My editor, bless her, because I wanted everything in there. I just wanted to tell every little detail. Like, <laughs> I'm, I describe, like, you know, Sticky is standing on this ship and, uh, in in this port in France, and I traced down the history of the ship and what it was doing in the war. And oh, and then I found out before the war, it was a cruise liner that ran here. And so I put all <laughs> okay. that in uh, because I was just so fascinated by every detail. And my editor, to her credit uh, and my unending gratitude, very generously and kindly said, uh, Loris, I think we need to cut some of these things. So so I went through and did a path and sort of cut out a third of it. And then she cut out, you know, the rest. And I'm very, very happy with the way that the book is, right? Because I think if you put too much in, yeah. the story gets lost. Yeah. So I think um, I'm, I'm, I'm extraordinarily grateful for how the book turned out, because I do believe this is the truest telling of her story. But then in regard to, you know, did it change from sort of the general arc to the end? I think, yes, it did, because I just realized so many more things about her. You know, I read every I, I didn't I didn't have the chance to read everything before I started writing the book. Right. Yeah. But then I read every single piece of paper that 
was in, that is in her archive. Wow. Like I read it all. And so I had just a greater depth of understanding of her, which did fundamentally change the story and how I told the story and what I included in the story. Wow. It's really, I think, fascinating to hear. Number one, you you mentioned something that I think a lot of authors experience, not just through a first draft, but through edits as well. And part of that in partnership with editors. So shout out to editors because they're very Mm -hmm. important. Uh, Being discerning, certainly editors at publishing houses, and it's not across the board, but they're going to give you some feedback. You're like, oh, I love that. So, you know, the kill your darlings Mm. sort of concept is discerning when you've, you're still, so it's still topical. It's still on the same topic, but you've Mm -hmm. sort of veered off and Mm -hmm. you're giving more than you need because you're fascinated. It's really interesting to hear that that happens even in a biography. So Mm. what happens maybe for a fiction author is it's often thought of that the first draft is you telling yourself as a writer the story. Mm -hmm. And then subsequent drafts are you refining what actually needs to go in the story for the reader and what were the parts that you just needed to express? So in right. fiction, in fiction terms, it's diving in. So some of that's the research, right? Because they're not reading anything. In, in your terms, it's like, what have I expressed that came from Dickie that's really important about her, but that mm-hmm. keeps the reader moving forward rather than going down a rabbit hole that can be (laughs) interesting. But then all of a sudden we were going traveling down a path. And I often take this analogy of uh, going on a road trip in Mm -hmm. a book. And those little side stops can be bursts of magic for anyone that's gone on a road trip. And those things that you run into that you weren't expecting. However, in the writing process, and when a reader is going along, if you take too many or go too far down the side trip, then you lose them. And so that's yeah. what the editor helped you sort of refine. Absolutely. And you lose the reader and you also lose your, your subject, right? Because right. in the in the as, um, example that I just cited, well, Dickie's not in there. I'm just talking <laughs> about a ship, you know? Yeah. But I do think it helped me. And just like in fiction writing, you know, where you write so much that's not in the book. I mean, Matthew Quick yes. on your show was talking yes. about this. Um, just to find it, you know, just to yes. find where you're going. And the same was true for me in this process where I had to write all this sort of extemporaneous detail to find where I wanted to really go and to find that story. And and just to bring it back to the editors, yes, they and particularly my editor really helped say, okay, this is, this is veering off. This is, you need to go back here and then go a little bit further this way and then come back. Um, but absolutely. I think that, of course, the practice of writing, the craft of writing is about building the entire world so that you can see it and then figuring out to continue your, your metaphor, the roadmap for a reader to be able to see it. Well, and that's it. There are, and it was, Many years ago, I heard uh, an interview with Robert McKee, who's again in fiction and screenwriting, and he was talking about these multiple levels. You know, there's what the reader knows because the writer has written it. There's what mm-hmm. the writer knows because they've studied it, but they just have it in themselves and they're not expressing it. And then there's this other thing that mm-hmm. is what the writer knows that they don't know that they know, but it informs mm-hmm. the way that they complete a character. 
And Mm -hmm. that sort of leads us to something we chatted briefly about at the beginning before I think we started recording, which this is part of the magic for me of writing. And it's really amazing to hear somebody who's written something that's biography and Mm -hmm. yet has a component of that. You're creating the world so that you're walking in it with Dickie so that even though you're going on archival stuff and you're not making up any of the dialogue, it informs the way that you write. Mm -hmm. Even in terms of structure of sentence, like her personality really comes through. And I think that's part of you having to go down this way, right? We'll talk about the the French ship and it was a cruise ship before. But if you, you as the writer didn't know all of that mm-hmm. and eventually take it out, it informed the way you had her moving across this ship because that mm-hmm. would feel different if it's not like what we think of as an aircraft carrier. It's, you know, like purpose built for war is right. being used for it, but that wasn't it. And so there is this unread nuance Mm. and that's that spiritual part. So that leads me to asking you, how do you feel that there was that, that creative freedom maybe with the project that some people wouldn't necessarily expect about something that's so research heavy? I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know if I would describe it as creative freedom and I'll Mm. tell you why. Because I didn't feel necessarily free. I felt compelled to write it in such a way that reflected how she would want her story told. Yeah. And, you know, she, her favorite genre was sort of whodunit thrillers, noir thrillers. And so I tried to weave that sensibility. And you talked about sentence structure and that kind of sentence structure into the book, because I, you know, we all narrate our lives in our heads. And I like literary fiction for better or worse. So perhaps my sort of narration of my life is with structures like Jose Saramago might write. There you Um, go. But, you know, I wanted the book to reflect her sensibilities. and And I felt compelled to do that from both the story arc down to the sort of kernels of the sentence structure. But to rephrase that, you know, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but I am not, I'm not a biographer and I'm not, I I don't read a lot of biography and I didn't want this to read like a biography. I I, I find so many biographies sort of start with birth and Uh, weather and (laughs) you know, the uncle who was there and the aunt who wasn't. And Mm. that just didn't interest me. Mm. That's just not the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write something that would convey the phonetic energy that she carried through her entire life. And, you know, she could not be anyone but herself. Mm. And that drove her so far and so fast. And I, and I wanted the the book to to capture that at least in part yeah well she has and she shared such a human perspective mm-hmm. I think and that was what was different so she was always looking for a hook any journalist needs to look for the hook and and if she were rejected in one spot you've got her saying okay that way that way is not going to work how mm-hmm. can I find it and maybe more so as she got more and more experienced she recognized that that whether or especially in war, it's a war fought by people. Mm-hmm. So there may be people at the top sort of pulling strings, but ultimately 
it's the people on the ground that she was embedded with or Mm -hmm. whatever these incredible experiences. I won't sort of ruin it with any specific examples, but I teared up, like even just the way that she wrote that she was, it wasn't not trying to accept something, but that she was complimented. And she had a deeper understanding of the people, mm-hmm. even maybe not necessarily understood on one side of the other, especially in those grayer areas and looking at a lot of the conflicts in, in Asia being mm-hmm. one of those and, and trying to bring that humanness to it. And I mm-hmm. think that by wanting to emulate what she would want to do, you've done that with a biography, biography. And I think that maybe that is different. Maybe that means. You've written it in a way that would mean you are more attack, uh, attracted to actually reading the genre rather than the someone was born and then the next day was this. And I've, uh, look, auto autobiography or any biography that's just going through, there are very few people in history, I think. May, even Dickie herself, you're not going to write mm-hmm. a book where you're talking about every day of every week of every year. Mm-hmm. Because we have heaps of boring stuff and there yeah. are very few people who can carry it, right? Yeah. Plus it would be far too long. So which doesn't stop a lot of biographies. There's six hundred well, pages. Yeah, they can <laughs> they can do that. And I'm sure it's sort of like I say, I do believe that there's a reader out there for mm-hmm. almost any story right? We all have those things that that we align with. Most of the conversations that I have with writers, and this is from observing writers, um, mm-hmm. not in a creepy stand back way, but more in support of them as they move through the process, that surrendering to it means there are, there are highs and lows, right? Mm-hmm. To like, I'm really into it. I'm getting... So maybe... Tell me about that. Did you have anything? Because of course, again, research-based, but you're you're trying to share the story in the way that you thought Dickie would share it. So maybe you have her whispering in your mind. Tell me about in your process and maybe even just like the the physical, you've got at least one young child at this time, which any mm-hmm. mother who's tried to write the number of writers I've worked mm-hmm. with who are like, I'm pregnant. So the perfect time to start a book is now. And then when <laughs> I have the baby that'll be the great time for me to take all this time to do the other things. And like, I mean, I'm not going to say no, I've Mm -hmm. had three children, but you go for whatever. I mean, I'm not saying prove me wrong, but it has its own literally energetic challenges. Like, do Mm -hmm. I have the energy? Yeah. So what did that look like for you when you're trying to distill all of this information and sit down and write? Did it look like, you know, this is my job at the moment, so I'm going to try to keep certain hours? Was it just in those stolen moments, as you said, for some parts on your phone, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, so it was right. I wrote this book during the pandemic with a young child. And we were splitting our time between Los Angeles, where we lived at the time, and Santa Barbara, where my folks uh, live. And for childcare, like we were in a pod. And, you know, both my husband and I were working full time, and we needed childcare. And this was the only way we could get it. Mm. So in Los Angeles, I had a writing studio, um, which was a closet um, (laughs) that I could fit a child's Ikea desk into perfectly. And exactly, there was not as, you know, you couldn't fit no a room. paper in, yeah. <laughs> but it was great. And then in when we were in Santa Barbara, my folks had a VW van and I turned that into my writing studio up 
up there and I would just, you know, sit at the table, uh, the fold out table that comes with the old timey camper van, you know, this is a 1968 avocado green camper van (laughs) and right in there when my son was sleeping or when my, when my mom could, could watch him or when my husband could watch him, which wasn't a lot because he was we were both just he's a he's a digital creator right so okay. everything was digital yeah. so he was insane during the pandemic and then and then I would edit while I was breastfeeding on my phone or holding my son to to go to sleep um, which was you know as you know as a mother when they're sort of zero to six months old they they don't want to sleep anywhere except for in your arms yeah. So I took that time to go back and reread what I had written and then edit it on on my phone. And yeah, just every day fitting whatever time I could in to write, to read, to research is what I did. And then also, you know, I don't know, but I, I got COVID oh. and I had to isolate and I got COVID before there were vaccines and I had a young child and I had to isolate from my family and I had all my research in the room with me and I and all I did was read ev- all day every day for 10 days and then I would come out like with a mask on like a hazmat suit to yeah. see my son outside because we didn't know at the time like yeah. what it would be like. Yeah. So that's also kind of how I kept my sanity during an incredibly difficult period was just just immersing, immersing, immersing myself in this work. And I haven't really thought about it until you asked me about it. Well, it'll be interesting Um, to see what changes now that mm -hmm. I mean, COVID's not gone, but we have a better understanding of maybe how we react to hopefully certain strains. And we know where the boundaries are. I saw something on, because of course now I'm following you on Instagram Mm -hmm. and I saw something that made me really, really excited to talk to you about, because it's something that I recommend all writers do when they're starting a new project. And I call it creating their own library of reference. So mm. it may be topics, it may be like they choose authors who have a writing style that they really resonates, whatever. And you had a stack of books and you didn't call it that, but it was like you were getting ready to write. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yay, somebody's doing that. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and what is it like? Because would it be another project where you're essentially, I mean, he sold it after, but commissioned to write it? Or is this a... I want to write this new thing now. And here's me getting started. So, you know, just to talk about uh, process for your listeners who are maybe looking to to write, to to get published. In my initial call with St. Martin's, the purchasing editor asked me what other books I wanted to write. And it sort of took me off guard because I wasn't expecting the question. I laughed and I said, oh, you want me to tell you what I want to do for the rest of my life? Sure. (laughs) <laughs> and I just rattled off a number of books that I sort of have in my head and have been thinking about. And one of them is a history of the cassette tape and how the cassette yeah. tape influenced the Cold War. So oh I'm I, I'm also a sort of Cold War historian. So in talking with my agent about what my next proposal should be now that I have two kids. <laughs> you know, make it easier. Just make, make it, it easier. Easy. Yeah. So yeah, like just side note, as I was going to the hospital to deliver, my editor sent me 
like the final edits to my manuscript. And I was like, sorry, Hannah, I'll have to get back to you in a couple of days. I'm about to give birth. <laughs> so so um, just to go back to your question, I gave this list of books that I wanted to write and she reacted variously to them. And my agent and I took note of her reactions and then discussed what my next project should be. And also what I was most passionate about yeah. writing. I think because, you know, there is this, balance that as a writer, especially I think as a nonfiction writer, you you have to embrace is there is a market, right? There is a marketplace. Mm. And you have to find that marketplace and you have to write from your own voice and you have to write what you're interested in. But mm. you also need to find an interest that you genuinely ha- genuinely have yeah. for which there is a market. And you know, my other sort of another book that I want to write is a memoir of, of weeds. I'm really passionate about not the, the cannabis, but sort of dandelions and uh, pokeweed and um, prickly lettuce and all these plants oh, wow. that sort of spontaneous grow and spontaneously grow in, in urban areas. But that's not a book for which there is a ready-made audience, right? I have right. to make that audience yeah. for that by writing other books for which there is an audience. Yeah. And so in sort of stacking my career and thinking the long term, what are the books that I can that will sell, that have an audience that I can slot, it, slot into, and that then I can take a springboard and do perhaps more experimental work that I think should be in the world. And I will put it into the world, but I want to do so in a way where it will have a, a place of, of reception. I think that's so fascinating because I had this preconception that biography, and I often talk about the the intellectual versus the heart stuff. Most mm. of the best writing that I've read is is writing that moves me. And that's within fiction and nonfiction. Mm-hmm. The difference is the genesis. And if it comes from a purely intellectual place, regardless of genre, I can say, oh, you know, those are good words, that no complaints, you know, it's fine technically, but I'm not and then I sound funny and I just, I'm just not feeling it. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not really doing anything for me. And so talking about, especially writing nonfiction, this balance and choosing, especially most writers that I know of generally have more than one idea. And they may mm-hmm. be at differing levels of sort of gestation within their mind, but being analytical, but also real with yourself about, I have all of these interests. They may be at varying degrees, but here are the ones that sort of like, if you do one of those diagrams and there are these overlaps, this one, this idea overlaps with a certain amount of interest with market interest. And and when you talk about that, I get really excited too, because I think you're right. You want the path of least resistance to getting readers. And isn't it really cool that you are thinking of these things that are not necessarily what somebody's saying, oh, you know what I really need to go out and get a book about? <laughs> um, but you are that person. You have those thoughts. So in in your your bio, you talk about historian and is it cultural? Remind me because I'm Cultural critic. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not even a a critique, but it's being able to see these things and how they have influenced Mm -hmm. culture below the radar. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so then it turns into sort of a a marketing exercise, right? Finding out like any business. So I'm sure your husband and way easier 
in the pandemic when everybody had to be at home. And so everyone's like, digital, yes, whatever yeah. you do, digitize me. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but giving them or talking to them about what you know they want mm-hmm. and delivering what they need, which is what you've identified, right? Which is really hard. A business has to do that. But guess what? Books are products. And if we can't identify as the creators of them, why mm-hmm. someone might want to read them, we're going to really struggle. I mean, that's obviously further in the piece, but even with this book, breaking, hopefully breaking down some of people's preconceptions, including my own, mm-hmm. about the way that a biography reads, especially if it's a person, I mean, fair play. She's totally fascinating from word go. No one's heard of her. But she, but you, know? you haven't heard of her, but as soon as you, you're thinking, well, that's not what I thought happened. Mm-hmm. A woman in the front or a woman embedded so early or a photojournalist. Um, there are certain things in her personal life that you share that would absolutely inform how fired up she got as well. Mm-hmm. And, and actually express this feeling of being torn, especially with her husband, where she got her surname. And you think, wow, this woman who had such moxie from a young age, brilliant. And somehow she gets herself involved with somebody who's like, and you think, well, I mean, the upshot is she gets herself away, but finding those, hopefully not universal, but certainly widely experienced threads, mm-hmm. elevate this above what I would normally think of as a biography that is what a man would buy. And again, the, totally my biases and my generalization, mm-hmm. right? But I'm not out there usually searching for those things. But what you deliver is something outside of that. And so and it's so like it actually connected me to her seeing that side of her being a woman and torn and a strong woman who mm-hmm. got herself entangled with somebody and eventually made disentangled. her way yes, yeah. disentangled. Yes, <laughs> disentangled. I mean, I think that goes back to your point about writing that comes from the intellect or writing that comes from the heart. And that also relates to academic writing or creative writing. Mm-hmm. And I really try to marry, and I do mean marry in the sense of a union, this writing that comes from your heart, this writing that touches you, that moves you, that makes you feel, that makes you drawn into the story with also something that is historically grounded. One of the reasons I felt really passionately about this, and particularly in her, in, in Dickie Chappelle's story, is because women are so often excluded from the history mm-hmm. of this time period. And they shouldn't be. They should be. And, and because they were not, they were in these histories. They were there. Not only was Dickie there, right? Yeah. But, and I don't want to delve too much into the, 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 the specifics of the story, but she always wrote about how important women's work was to revolution, was to peacemaking, was to just survival in difficult circumstances. And she herself plays women, I think, like no other writer, frankly, during that time, of which I'm aware. Mm within the history of the Cold War and put them not only within it, but central to it. That's something I wanted to accomplish with this book. And I wanted both men and but especially women readers to feel like they were important and perhaps not valued, but important during Mm. this time. Because I don't I think it's 
I mean, as a woman, and this is sort of a, not not a new thing to say, but it's difficult to see our importance in the in the moment on our current moment yeah. if we don't see our importance in in the past. If we can't read yes. the history into ourselves, yeah. And so I I wanted to 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 do some of that with this book. Yeah, I think all we get are things like you know the the posters and people dressing up a Rosie the Riveter. Right. Um, or thinking, you know, they were just nurses. And it's sort of the erasure of women as active members of all of these things. And sure, there were women who were at home tending things, but they did, they weren't disappeared. And you're mm-hmm. right. If we don't sort of bring light to them in the past, then we feel like we're breaking all this new ground now, maybe, or we don't have permission to. It's like any segment of the population that can't see themselves, Mm -hmm. it makes it harder to feel like they can move forward because they don't have those examples. And again, that heart-connected example rather than a totally intellectual, yes, that is interesting, and yet Mm -hmm. it doesn't move you. Whereas you've taken something and number one, shown a light on somebody nobody knew, never heard of her, you know, but was right in it. Mm-hmm. And and fought for her place there, right? And letting people connect to her so that they can see. I mean, hell, if she did that back then, what can we do now? Exactly. exactly. That sort of thing. I mean, I'm really excited to see with this next project about the cassette tape, because of course, I'm of the age where when you say that, I don't think of the Cold War. I think of, you know, using pencils to like <laughs> wind the tape back up or... What did I see the other day? A really colorful one. My husband's a little bit younger than me. He used cassette tapes, but like he said, oh, those were the flash ones that we didn't use. Those were really <laughs> like a Memorex one that had multicolors. So it is definitely embedded in me. But that's another reason to bring those things out. You you would be giving in a book like that, number one, historical perspective. Number two, a sense of nostalgia (laughs) that is quickly disappearing because kids these days don't know how old phones work. Right. And they did. They look at a thing and they're like, what is that? Or mm -hmm. they reinvent a camera. I just saw this and I thought somebody's joking, right? They're like this, this really amazing thing. It's really going off. It's like you use it and there's film in there and they and 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 the design of it and I'm like I had that camera what do you mean that's a new probably in the back of my closet right yes yeah right like in a junk box I didn't and so it kind of blew my mind so without diving into it you've got the cassette tape and then you were talking about weeds which I think that is fascinating taking something that people aren't thinking about and then transforming it into something that's relevant Mm-hmm. to their life that they connect connect with now. And especially those weeds that just pop up, like you said, in cities. I mean, where do you come up with some of these ideas, by the way? Well, so I lived in New York for a long time and I was just fascinated by the life that would just come out of the pavement. And I started looking into, for instance, where is the pokeweed from and why is it here? It's not native to New York. Well, it was brought, it's from uh, Europe, and especially in Ireland, it was used as a medicine and particularly to subdue fevers. And so it was brought over by immigrants as either, you know, accidental seeds in your coat or on purpose to plant. And they would plant it particularly in the, um, what is it, the, the, the five stars, 
you know, I can't remember uh, the exact name of the neighborhood, but it's what is now the Bowery to use. And then it was spread throughout the Northeast and then the South and was used during the flu uh, epidemic in 1917 and 1918 as a way to combat Spanish influenza and anecdotally was very successful because it is an anti-inflammatory when steeped in a tea. And there are all these stories just growing all over the streets of New York, but also the world of stories of immigrants, stories of slavery, stories of movement, stories of war that grow around us every day and we don't notice them. So our histories are growing in the streets, literally. Oh so okay. I can talk to you all day. I'm going to leave it there so we don't make this the super long podcast episode, but I am absolutely excited to have people go out, number one, and get first to the front so that they can connect with Dickie Chappelle and be inspired by her and the work that she did. And maybe just have more people who don't forget that there was a woman out there doing this. And then, of course, following you for (laughs) these other really fascinating stories. Anytime somebody can make history interesting when it is wholly researched and yet still readable rather than, you know, some of the sagas. I had a history teacher in high school that that got us into history by reading things that I don't think it was Sidney Sheldon, but God help me. Maybe it was <laughs> like generational. And we don't want that. We want the real history, but the human factor mm. and the cultural factors you're bringing into things that seem so disparate, so separate is fascinating. So you are absolutely an author to watch. <laughs> Thank Check you. the show notes, everyone, for the places to follow Larissa. Go pick up that book. When is it out? Is it out already? No, it's out July 11th. July 11th yeah. in the US. Do you know? So we've got readers from all over as it happens, or readers, listeners from all over. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be available? This is all very book publishing centric, but has St. Martin sold it into other territories or people best just to buy it online? Or if they're in the U.S., they can get it at a bookshop. Yeah, best just to buy it online or in a bookstore for a year in the U.S. I'm sure that it will be globally distributed, but we don't, we don't have the We're waiting. Yet. Look, yes. Amazon, as much as it's not necessarily great for everyone, especially in the U.S., for those mm-hmm. of us who live outside the U.S. and want books that are published in the U.S., sometimes we have a sneaky way of getting them. Mm-hmm. We pay a little bit more. But it's mm-hmm. worth it if you really want to get the story. So Absolutely. go and follow Larissa. Thank you so much for coming on Writers Talking. And I cannot wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more writers in conversation as we delve into the writer's process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.